From the 80 Minutes Around the World Immigration Stories, a storytelling show. This is Immigration Stories with Nestor Gomez. Stories and conversations with immigrants, refugees, second, third generations, and allies, where we explore the ideas, policies, and histories that forge national identity, community, and belonging in America. We are your hosts, Angel Ling and Nestor Gomez. As Nestor and I take a short break from live shows, we hope that you continue to enjoy and share our stories provided through this podcast platform. Now more than ever, during this possibly largest public health crisis within our lifetime, we need our family, friends, our tribe, our communities for support. And we need stories, the kind that remind us about our belonging to each other, not the ones that separate us. This next story takes us back to that time when we first convinced ourselves we were somehow different. Here is Dr. Edith Gonzalez's story as told on stage for 80 Minutes Around the World, Immigration Stories, on October 12, 2019 at the Caveat in Manhattan. My dad took us to see the 10th anniversary theatrical release of West Side Story. And when Natalie Wood appeared on screen, I was shocked because she looks like my mom. And as she danced around that dress shop singing, I feel pretty, I thought she was the most, well, second most beautiful woman I had probably ever seen in my life because my mom was like, inched her out a little bit. And I thought, this is really cool. And I, for somehow, ever since that day, that movie held a little special place in my heart. So imagine my excitement when they say, we're remaking West Side Story with Steven Spielberg directing, filming in New York, and we're looking for extras. I was like, yes. So I'm in the kitchen and I tell my son, oh my God, I just updated my photo to central casting because I want to be cast as an extra in the historic remake. And as I'm drinking my coffee, he turns and says, mom, if they see your photo, how will they know if you're supposed to be a shark or a jet? And I laughed and continued drinking my coffee. And when I went to put the coffee mug in the sink and I was cleaning out the pot, it occurred to me that that is a question that has been asked of me my entire life. That whenever anyone learns I'm Puerto Rican, the first response is usually, oh, you don't look Puerto Rican. And my reaction is, what does Puerto Rican look like? Um, and as I stood there at the sink, washing my cafe bustelo coffee grounds down the drain and scrubbing with a little bit of that El Ajax, as my mother called it. Those two combined smells just took me right back to my grandmother's house. And where I grew up in Queens, my family lived on the street that separated the white neighborhood from the black and Hispanic neighborhood. 
but we lived on the white side of the street. And we would go on Saturdays to my grandmother's house, which was teeming with, I have 35 first cousins. My mom is one of 10 kids. And, and on Saturdays, sometimes, we would be there, and the girls with their long, flowing, very curly hair, um, we'd get our hair washed in the sink um, by, usually by whoever your mom is, and then probably maybe another auntie was there, because I had a lot of aunties. And I kept thinking about this day. I got this day returned to me in memory because of the smell of the coffee and the Ajax in the sink. Of having my hair washed by my mom and my Titi Edith, who's my mother's oldest sister. Now, my mom has this kind of quiet beauty, like Natalie would. And she has that really smooth, dark hair. My Titi Edith, now is the 70s, looked more like Rita Hayworth, like red hair, but out of a bottle, red hair, and wearing leopard print. It didn't matter if it was the fanciest clothes she had or the most casual clothes she had, it was leopard print, and there was always aqua blue eyeshadow. And she smelled like a combination of like Avon Skin So Soft and Chanel number five, and I thought she was the most, I just thought she was the coolest, just the most hip looking, beautiful, loud, fantastic, vibrant woman I had ever seen in my life. So I'm getting my hair washed by my mom, and they're combing my, as they finish washing my hair, my mom begins to comb my hair out, and you can see my hair is very curly. And as they're washing my hair, I'm getting like every other word they're saying because the water is running over my ears. And they're speaking in Spanish to each other. And I only understand about half of what they're saying. And the water takes it down to about a third. But the word that keeps coming up is rubia, rubia, which means blonde. Because of my 35 first cousins, I'm the only one that's blonde. And they're talking about my hair as being linda and pretty. But my mom, when she begins to comb it, starts at the top and brings the comb straight down because she's trying to make it straight. Because no matter how blonde it is, the curl is undesirable. And I'm sitting there sort of gripping the sink afterwards, and every yank of the comb sort of pulls my head back a little bit. And then they begin to wrap my hair. And I don't know if you've ever seen girls who look like this, where you begin to pull the hair in a really tight circle around your head and set a big, one of those big, big black bobby pins about every half an inch around. And you wrap it and wrap it with this bobby pin in around your hair, and then get a, like a little polyester chiffon scarf over it to sort of cover it, and then you go and you wait for your hair to dry. Because the point is, after all of this pain, you'll be able to pull those bobby pins out and make it straight. And as they're doing this to my hair, my aunt, who is the most glamorous woman in the world, takes my face and she looks at me and she says, you're so pretty, que linda, que rubia. And my mother says, mm, yeah, but the curls. And she says, mm, y eso también. And she touches the end of my nose. And she says, we can fix it, a little pinche. And she pinches the end of my nose, 
and reaches to this little cloth bag my grandmother had over the sink and takes out a clothespin and sets it on the end of my nose. And it really hurt. But she holds my face and she says, don't worry about it. It will make you look like Grace Kelly. And in that moment, I had this contrast of emotions. I felt really special because I was the only one who was blonde. And my mother was always impeccably groomed. If anything in this family, beauty for women was the highest thing you could achieve. And the fact that my auntie, my most glamorous auntie, could hold my face and say, you will be beautiful, like Grace Kelly. I was really proud. But at the same time, I was thinking, in this rainbow of my family, where I am the lightest in our spectrum of shade, and looking at my aunties who, who are practicing blancamiento, that you're marrying lighter after moving to the mainland. The pain that's involved in that process as a child. Am I a shark or am I a jet? As I stood at that sink and watched my cafe bustelo swirling down the drain, I was really angry at my mother because for me, with my 50% Spanish, I was, why, why couldn't she just love me for me? Why did I have to try and be this quietly ornamental something else? Why, why didn't she just teach me Spanish? How many years did I have to face, really, you're Puerto Rican? You don't look Puerto Rican. And from the Puerto Rican people, you're Puerto Rican? ¿Y por qué no hablas español? Because my mother didn't teach me Spanish. And as I stood there, I kind of realized, like Natalie Wood in West Side Story, my mother moved to the mainland in 1950. There is a reason why she and her sisters chose Asimilao why my cousins of the second half of those 10 kids didn't learn Spanish at home. And there is a reason why they wanted our hair straight. And the reason is they didn't want us to face the same kind of discrimination that they were facing every day. So there I stood thinking about my son, to whom I did not speak, teach Spanish, and he looks at me, <laughs> with his big blue eyes and his very, very curly hair that we are finding it is impossible for him to get a decent haircut in Texas, I'm just saying. And I wonder, is he equipped to answer that question? Is he a shark or a jet? Or is he suspended like me somewhere in between the heaven and earth 
Am I flying above 30,000 feet like a jet? Or am I swimming in the ocean like a shark? I think for me, I find myself walking the tightrope and suspended there somewhere in the middle, always looking for the balance. But my nose never straightened, and I will never be Grace Kelly. Here's Edith and I on the cultural values, language, and generational boundaries that defines us and makes us unique. So in your story, you talked about your hair. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, to begin with. Yeah. <laughs> I, I grew up in this. I, I, was, I have always struggled with my hair because... If you're thinking like in terms of Puerto Rican culture for people of my mother's generation, my hair's the right color. Mm. But, um, or at least it was before I started going gray. <laughs> and, um, but it's completely the wrong texture. My sister mm. has a combination of a desirable color and te- hair texture. So she had like good hair. Um, mm. It's It's got that beautiful bouncy sort of wave to it. It's not too curly, but it's not totally stick straight and it's not black. It's sort of like a deep chestnut brown, like perfect. And she has little freckles. She's very pale, mm. she has little freckles. So it was like, oh, that's all very desirable. My sister's very beautiful. Hmm. Yeah, so I, the only thing I had was, okay, it's blonde, but we got to fix this. <laughs> right. Yeah, that's interesting because, well, so I want to talk about this now that you bring up the sister, because there's, you, you know, and your sister didn't make it into the story, but. She didn't, no. Right. Um, but there was this sort of like your, there's your mom mm-hmm. and then all your aunts. Yeah. So many sisters. Many sisters. Um, but one in particular made it into the story, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then here you're bringing up. Your, you and your sister, right? So let's talk a little bit about that sort of, because I also have a sister. Ooh. <laughs> Are you older or younger? I'm the younger one. Oh, yeah, me too. I'm a little child. Oh, ooh. Yeah. You have just no, one sister? Okay. Yeah, oh. I have one sister and one younger brother. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's talk about that sort of like comparison making possibly and mm-hmm. that we ourselves make with our sisters, yeah. our siblings, and then... and possibly like our parents make with us and how that sort of also impacts and how that's different maybe yeah culturally perhaps I don't know I think that for my struggle was always like I worship my sister uh, one year older but she was like everything I wanted to be Mm. and a lot of that had to do with my mother's expectations for how girls are supposed to behave and my sister is an incredibly strong person. She's also quiet. It, she's not quiet boring. She's quiet, like, completely still within herself. Like, she's an introvert, too, to some degree. And um, so my mom's very quiet, and she's very shy. So my sister and my mom have a, a similarity in their personality there, and I think they just understand each other. Mm-hmm. And I'm really loud. And I'm very extroverted. And also, I'm not stoic at all. Like, I cry for the, le- like, at a commercial or mm. whatever. And my mom is just like, why are you, ugh, you know, why are you crying? Like, it's just not, she, she's, I don't know, I guess she saw it as, like, weak. And so, 
it was difficult for me growing up because I had to like, oh, always trying to change who I felt I was at the core. Like my natural reactions to things were wrong, always wrong. And my sister seemed to just move through life effortlessly. And I wanted that so badly. And I think if my sister was, my sister's a really cool person. Like she's just a really fantastic person out in the world. And she can, she's super smart, really capable and really caring. But so I think that if she had been less than that, it would have created a huge sibling rivalry. But it didn't because she's so she was so great to me as a little sister. She was always terrific to me. So I was just like, she's the best thing ever. Aww. But I wanted to be like her so much. Mm. I think I must have driven her crazy. But she would never admit it. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. So when I see my mom with her sisters, mm-hmm. She has many to choose from. Uh, she she has five sisters, so she she had a you know a choice of which one she wanted to hang out with. Mm-hmm. And I looked at her and her oldest um, her older sister, who I was named for, my aunt Edith. Um, I look at their relationship, and it's funny now looking back at it, because I think in some ways my mom wished she was more like my aunt Edith. And I'm very much like my aunt, like the same mm. kind of like loud, brash, sort of like always everything's a party. And I don't know, I just see it. I see these like little pairs, like these little duets. Mm-hmm. So like her and her older sister and me and my older sister, but the personalities are flipped. Right. Yeah. I like that because, you know, in your story, you talk about the shark or the, you know, there's yeah. these sort of like binary yeah. things. Yeah, very much so. Yeah. And I may, I don't know why I think of everything as so binary. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I in my research, I'm an, I'm an historical anthropologist. So, like, I look at human society all the time, and very few things are binary. Like, mm-hmm. most things, there is a spectrum or there is a, um, you know, it's not that cut and dried. But it's funny. In my own life, I look at things in these binary, these little mm-hmm. opposition. ask you about your chosen profession other than as a storyteller which is like your new chosen profession yeah um as an anthropologist right obviously you're studying cultures and you're Mm -hmm. how much of can I say that you're kind of almost like in between cultures or maybe not in between but just like understanding both yeah I I um when I so when I was first studying anthropology, I was originally a chemistry major, and I was going to be a doctor, a medical doctor, mm-hmm. and I had to take a required social science class, and I ended up taking an anthropology class because it was at the right time of day and fit into my mm-hmm. schedule. And I was like, yeah, okay, I'll fulfill this requirement, and I went, and it was fascinating to me. And I think part of the reason why I was so drawn to it was because of growing up in this in-between state of not really being Puerto Rican and not really being um, white. Mm-hmm. And and so I, I one of the, as I began to take that as my major and I started, uh, I took a course on Caribbean. They used to have something called, this is how old I am. Well, at Hunter, I went to Hunter College in New York and they had uh, a, a 
what is it, an area of study called Black and Puerto Rican Studies. Mm. So I took some classes in Black and Puerto Rican Studies. I took some classes in Caribbean Studies. So when I first, so for my first master's thesis, I, I wrote about um, what's called circular migration in Puerto mm. Rico, so that you have people um, within the Caribbean who are migrating, seasonally migrating from place to place, and how they come back, and then how that expands to migration over a lifetime. So as my mom would migrate and her family migrated to New York and New England, they kind of spread out from uh, Connecticut, actually. So most of my family doesn't live in New York anymore. They live in mm-hmm. Connecticut. But um, it, but m- most of the uh, my mom and her siblings went back to Puerto Rico. Mm-hmm. And I asked my mom once why, like, why was she so obsessed with moving back to Puerto Rico? Yeah. And she said that she had read an article that as you age, if you develop um, uh, memory issues, Mm. that your brain will revert to your first language. And she had this fear of losing English or any other language and being a monolingual speaker of Spanish on the mainland. Mm. She's like, if I'm old and I need to, and someone's caring for me, I need to be able to speak with them. So I'm going to move back to Puerto Rico. Hmm. And I, I, and that's a while ago. Now that I think about it, uh, as I'm getting older, I think, when did she say that to me? She wasn't much older than I am now. Oh my hmm. God! Ah. Um, and so I just thought that that was really interesting for her thinking about language and thinking about how she moves between her languages. I once asked her what language she dreams in. Mm-hmm. And she said, it depends who I'm dreaming about. Hmm. And the only dreams I have in Spanish are about her or my grandmother. I think mm. that's weird. But that it makes sense, I guess. But right. And mm. I don't know if my Spanish in my dreams is accurate. <laughs> 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 Might be my pretend Spanglish. Yeah. yeah. That's a very, right, that's an interesting response from your mom. That's very logical. Yeah. There are other reasons. There's, I mean, it's her, it's the place that has always been, I think that she's always really seen, she was born in Ponce, so that's the town where she grew up um, to some degree, uh, spent her like earliest childhood, and I think those are really happy memories for her. Um, She also has memories of going to her her grandparents, so my great-grandparents, and they had a coffee plantation just north of Ponce. That land was lost to the family after mm-hmm. uh, my grandmother and her family migrated northwards. And I know for my mom, it is her absolute dream to buy at least some piece of that land back. Mm-hmm. And it's it's just really funny. She, I feel like she really, she does, I think she got tired of living in a city also. Mm-hmm. I think she really wanted to be on the land. Um, it's just there's something about owning a piece of that land that has been she's fixated on it. Right. She's she recently like last week told my sister that she wants to be cremated and her ashes spread on that land. So we have to mm-hmm. figure out exactly where it was. Mm-hmm. So, but she, as she's getting older, she's reminiscing about that land quite a bit. Do you usually tell people you're Puerto Rican, or do you feel that? The question doesn't even really come up, or how how does it come up? It comes up in a couple of ways. Um, if they don't see me and we're on the phone or we're emailing, 
people assume that I'm his ba- they assume right. Gonzalez is my name and then when I meet them they're like are you like where'd you get that name or is it your husband's name or something and I'm like no it's my name thank you very much so it does come up and usually what I what I have been saying for years is that I'm New Yorican because mm-hmm. I think that is an accurate description I was born here I grew up in New York um, I'm I'm culturally Puerto Rican but I'm a native New Yorker so that makes me New Yorican and I was at a show and I said something about being New Yorican, and this scholar who who studies like um, social justice and and political science and in Puerto Rico turned to me and he was like, "No, you're not. You're Puerto Rican." And I was like, "What?" And he's like, "You no. You need to claim your Puerto Ricanness." So I was feeling like a bad Puerto Rican, and I needed to start claiming it. So in the last few months, I've just been like, "Okay, yeah, I'm Puerto Rican. I'm just gonna go with it." But Puerto Ricans are like, you weren't born there. Why are you saying that? So mm-hmm. I get flack. I, like, no matter what I say, I'm going to be wrong. So I'm just going to I'm just gonna roll with it and mm-hmm. just say, you know, I'm just going to claim it. I'm going to claim – I'm going to claim it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. The New Yorican. Yeah. I, I wrote a, about Spanglish a long time ago about the idea that Spanglish is an actual valid form of expression – that it's evolving, that the Spanish of New York, um, for people who were born here and grew up here, that there's a lot of, in much the same way that there was all this talk about good hair and bad hair or lightness, there's this referral to, you know, proper Spanish. Mm-hmm. And all languages are mold and shape to and they're situational Mm -hmm. so it's like the english you learn in school and then the english you speak with your friends and the english you speak with your parents and then at your job like there's different there's different forms of it and that's what spoken language is about and when i thought about spanish in the same you know spanish is the same and then you put the two of them together and all of a sudden, Spanglish is this really inferior thing. And I'm like, Spanglish isn't an inferior thing. It's a completely situational mm. language. And so I'm very pro-Spanglish. Um, <laughs> yeah. I want to call it something else, though. And I was like, I had all these like real like power to the people, Puerto Rican-isms for how to describe Spanglish mm. for a while. And then, um, like, my Dominican friends would be like, yo, you're, you're leaving out a big part of the population in New York who speaks Spanglish, so maybe you need to rethink that. So I, I have to rethink it. One of the things that my mom used to say, and it's, for me, it's the epitome of Spanglish, is mira que cute. Mm. Yeah, th- there are words in Spanish for cute, but cute has its own set of connotations so she'd be like ah oh, mira que cute and I'm like oh my god that's so funny mm-hmm. and so for for always like when people are like what's Spanglish I'm like mira que cute I want to just, just ask you if you had anything else you wanted to add for the interview about mm-hmm. your story or not related to your story at all actually the thing I think about my story that just surprised me when I was telling it because when I tell stories I they've never been written down Mm. um so I figured them out in my head and sometimes when you're up there doing a performance it goes in a direction you weren't quite expecting and so my son was in the audience 
Mm. And when I first told the story, he wasn't there. Like, I was practicing at home. Mm. And then when he was there and in the audience, I had this overwhelming, like, oh, my God, am I a terrible mother kind of feeling. And so afterwards, we he and I got into a really deep conversation about how have I prepared him for the story or for Spanish you mean? For, 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 have for life, I, for life <laughs> in in being comfortable with who he is mm. in being comfortable for 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 walking that tightrope for always being somewhere in between mm. um, because he will always be somewhere in between mm-hmm. and that can be very freeing actually to mm-hmm. be there because if someone has already decided that you're not what they are, so either I'm not Puerto Rican or I'm not, you know, white, then then that leaves that gives me a freedom to be to to act outside of the societal norm and in both cases. So it's kind mm-hmm. of fun. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. And what what's his response? He said, I mean, for me it's interesting to me because his identity is still shaping. He's mm. he's teenager. He's always like, "Yo, you're a great mom. You know, I'm good. Like, we're we're all good with this." That he's he's sorting it out, and he said he's figuring it out. Mm. And so I was like, "Okay, if I can pre- prepare my kid to figure it out, to have that mm. be active and changing as he moves through life, because it's not going to be the same always as for him as it is right now, then maybe I'm okay. Like, we're all doing okay." <laughs> mm-hmm. If he said to me, "I've figured it out." and it's complete, then I think I would be more worried. Mm -hmm. Because it's going to change. That was New York City-based storyteller Dr. Edith Gonzalez. Edith is a native New Yorican with four graduate degrees in various subfields of anthropology. She has a slight obsession with Lord of the Rings and was recently featured on the Story Collider and Risk podcasts. Once we get back to our normal lives, you can find her hosting the public display of affection storytelling show at Ainsworth Social in New York City on the second Tuesday of the month and as a frequent judge for the notorious sex storytelling show, Smut Slam. You can follow her Instagram for upcoming shows. Immigration Stories with Nestor Gomez is a production of 80 Minutes Around the World Immigration Stories. More information on 80 Minutes Around the World Immigration Stories can be found on our website, NestorGomezStoryteller.com, and the show's Facebook page. Please contact us if you have a story you want to share or would like to invite the show to your city or organization near you. Immigration Stories podcast is created produced by Nestor Gomez and Angel Link. Thank you for listening. Please remember to like and share.